And you may be seated. Hey, well, good morning, Tri-Cities Church. Right, the church is a community that lives in constant celebration of what Jesus has done. Right, our status has changed, our identity has changed, our hope is renewed, and therefore, as a church, we live in constant celebration of what God has done. Well, good morning and welcome to Tri-Cities Church. Hey, if this is your first time here, uh, we do welcome you. I'm Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the joy of uh, being able to preach most Sundays uh, and share in the Word uh, with you as a church as we uh, grow up together into holiness and righteousness in, in Christ Jesus. Hey, um, in the seats in front of you, there are um, there are cards. They're just connection cards or whatever kind of cards you want to call them. Um, but there's our way of connecting at Tri-Cities Church. We'd love to know that you are here. Uh, if, if you've never filled out one of those cards, we'd just love for you to fill out whatever information on the card you feel comfortable uh, filling out. Uh, there are buckets on these uh, four tables around the room. Uh, after the message, when we share in communion, uh, those buckets are actually for our giving, but you can drop the card in there. And also, if you have any kind of prayer requests or anything that's going on in your life that you want us to join you in prayer about, uh, we'd love to do that. You can write that on those uh, cards. We do, uh, our staff gets together on Monday mornings and we uh, spend some time in prayer with one another uh, for the church and for you individually, uh, believing that God is a God that hears our prayers and that God does incredible things when we submit to him in prayer. And so prayer isn't just about getting the things we want. In fact, it's not at all about getting the things we want, but rather it's about placing ourselves before the Lord who knows what's best for us and trusting that he will provide for all of our needs. Amen? Hey, well, this morning we are continuing our series. We started last week a two-week series. We're just simply calling Foolish Things. And so we started this two-week series in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians uh, where we are looking and exploring Paul's use of the word foolish and the concept of foolishness of the cross uh, in, uh, I guess, these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And so we'll be back there uh, this week again as we wrap up this topic of Foolish Things. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into our message. God, we do give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to come into this place and to gather as your people. God, I am encouraged by the gathering of the saints. Right? That's what you call us, and that's what Paul writes to and when he writes to the church in, Cor- in Corinth. And that's what you call us when you look at us. You see us as saints as the holy ones, the holy people of God, and not holy because of something that we've done, but holy because you thought we were worth saving, and you sent your son to die on the cross, and as a result of what he has done, his holiness now becomes our holiness. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His life becomes our life as we follow him. And so, God, we thank you that we get to be your people, and we don't get to just be called holy because of what you've done, but we are actually empowered by your Spirit to live into that holiness as we are sanctified into Christ's likeness. God, I just pray that this morning, as we open your word, that you will help us to see how we can live more like you by the power of your Spirit, by the freedom we have that was secured by, for us on the cross. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, so I have a tendency to do some, uh, do some foolish things sometimes. Uh, when, when I was, uh, I was thinking about this, this, this just this week. Uh, so like, let me give you a little bit of backstory. So um, when the car I learned to drive on was a Ford Escort, a red Ford Escort wagon. 
Um, yeah, it was, it was red. It was a wagon. It was four-cylinder. And I don't know if y'all remember, four-cylinders have gotten a little bit better uh, than they used to be. It used to be when you were driving a four-cylinder car, when you would mash the gas, if you had the gas and the AC going at the same time, you were just hoping that thing would pick up some speed. In fact, when I was driving this little Ford Escort, I would, sometimes when I needed to get out like in an intersection or get on the highway, I would turn the air condition off just so I could gain speed quickly because when the air conditioner was going, that little four-cylinder just could not handle both things at once. But I, I, I fell in love with, with uh, wagons, like station wagons. And car, I, I just liked the way they had this roomy trunk and, you know, where you could lift up the back and you could put all kinds of stuff in there. And so about 2010, I decided I wanted to get one of those Honda Fits. I don't know if y'all remember the Honda Fit or you know about the Honda Fit. I, I wanted a Honda Fit, and I went in this dealership to try to buy a Honda Fit. And I'm one of those guys, right? I'm one of those hagglers. My wife looks at me like I'm crazy. My mom, when I bought my first car and she went into dealership with me, uh, I think I drove her crazy. Um, because when I come in with the price I want, it is the price I want. And I walked out of this dealership and did not get this Honda Fit. Well, that was about 2010, 2014-ish, 15-ish. I ended up coming back to get a Honda Fit. This time I wanted one for sure. And I walked away with this Honda Fit. Now, I bought this Honda Fit and I like the, I love the Honda Fit because it has this wagon kind of back door on it, and you could lay the seats down. And I saw the commercials about how you could fit all kinds of bikes in the back, and you could fit a surfboard in the back. Now, I'm in Georgia. I'm not going surfing. But something about the idea of fitting a surfboard in my Honda Fit was compelling for me. So I bought this Honda Fit, and I took that word fit as a little bit of a challenge. I wanted to see how much stuff I could fit in there. I don't know. I might have told you all this story once before. Um, but one of the things, I don't know if you all remember when we did this Nehemiah sermon. It was on the fifth Sunday, and all the kids were, uh, were sitting up here, and we had all these cinder blocks that were lining the stage. We bought 30 of them from Home Depot. I fit all 30 of those cinder blocks in my Honda Fit, right? They were in the back. They were on the passenger seat, stacked up to the ceiling. They were in the passenger seat, uh, the front passenger seat stacked up to the ceiling. There was only this little space for me to sit in, 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 this, in this Honda Fit because I wanted to see how much I could fit. And the guy at Home Depot was like, he was kind of like, I'm not having anything to do with this because it's <laughs> You tear up your car. And we got to the point where I was just like, we only got five or six more. Like, we're going to make these things fit. After all, I drive a Honda Fit. And I just, I was thinking the whole time, man, if I tear up my suspension, my wife is going to kill me. Golly. Or, hey, I could have just, just made a quick trip and come back and picked up some more. But I do some foolish things. Um, the most foolish thing I did in that Honda Fit was I, I, had a, I used to have a kayak. And um, I was, man, I, I guess I was, it was just kind of hard times or I wanted to buy something. And I made a decision I was going to get rid of my, my kayak and, uh, and, I, and I needed to sell it. So I met this guy on Craigslist and I didn't want him to come to my house because you, know you know what they say about Craigslist people. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want him to come to my house. So I was going to meet him around the corner with this kayak. And, and, uh, and so I, right, you know, I saw the commercials about how you could fit a surfboard in there. I was like, it's surfboard, kayak, same difference, right? Eight-foot surfboard, nine-foot kayak, same difference, right? And so I, so I started loading this kayak in the, in the car, and I have like an inch to go, right? And I can almost get the back closed. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to nice and gently push it. I gently pushed it, pushed it that one inch, and the front of the kayak hit the windshield, and it cracked. Now I was selling the thing to get some money to buy something else that I wanted. And I had like a $500 deductible. I got nothing, right? In fact, I ended up losing, losing money on it because sometimes we tend to do foolish things, right? <laughs> Hopefully I'm not alone in that. Hopefully we all have that tendency. I might, I might do things that are more foolish th than some. Now, in, in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, 
in 1 Corinthians. We saw last week uh, that Paul calls the message of the Christ cross foolishness, right? If you look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he's almost saying, like, depending on where you stand is how you accept the message, right? For those of us who are being saved, it's God's power. But to the world, to those who have yet to accept Jesus Christ, and those who are looking at a distance, so Savior who dies is no Savior at all. So the world's looking at it, and they're going, this is a foolish message. A Savior doesn't die. The hero of the story never loses his life. It may look like he's going to die, but the, the hero of the story never dies. We stood there. We watched him, him die. Like We watched this happen. The hero of the story, the one who gathered the crowds, he died. They buried him. They sealed the tomb. And so the world is going, this is a foolish message for these believers in Jesus Christ to believe that this guy actually came back from the dead. Because here we are, thousands of years, and this is what we know. No one is buried and comes back. That's what the world knows, right? That's what, what, what people were proclaiming. And so that message seemed like foolishness. In fact, if you pop down uh, in verse 27, the Bible begins kind of unpacking this for us, where it says in verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so the Bible's saying, hey, it is a foolish thing for the Savior, the hero of the story, to die, but it worked. It's almost like God's gone from heaven. Now, who's foolish now, right? Uh, so you might say it's a foolish message for the savior of the story, the hero of the story to die. And God's going, now, who's foolish, right? This worked. And then we see at the end of this chapter in verse 30, it says, it is because of him that you are in Christ. Not because of anything that you've done. Not because you figured this thing out. Um, not because you earned it or deserved it. It's simply because of him, an act of his grace that you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. That is what we could not accomplish on our own, what human wisdom was unable to do, what the scholars, philosophers, the teachers of the age were trying to figure out, which is how to fix this broken place, what became the longing of every human heart, right, for this place to be made right, for our relationships to be made right, for our communities to be made right, for our neighborhoods and our families to be made right. What is the longing of every human heart, what we could not figure out by our best teaching, our best strategies, the best books that have ever been written that could not do, God has done through Jesus Christ. That is our holiness, our righteousness, our redemption. God has brought us back as his own. And he says, you may have been used for purposes and uh, to do things that are outside of the will of God, but God says, you are never too far from me to save, and I claim you back as my own, and I can use you. No matter how broken and complicated and hard life gets, how messed up things are, our redemption, right? that's God saying, I can use you. And we saw last week that the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, invites us into this, this uh, rest unlike the world has ever known, that it invites us into this rest for our souls. 
it's this message that says that we don't have to fix it, right? That we don't have to figure it out. That we don't have to run after the things of this world as though our hope is found in them. We don't have to pursue uh, fixing our families or fixing our neighborhood or writing our relationships as though our hope depends in us being able to figure those things out and get all these things right. Christ has already gotten it right for us. We simply need to rest in him. And the scriptures are calling us to this peace and this rest, this contentment in him and what he's done. It's showing us how short-sighted sometimes we are because in the moment all we can see is brokenness. But the Bible is saying there is hope and healing and restoration, holiness, righteousness, and redemption is yours in Christ Jesus. And it's calling us to rest in that fact. You see, the Bible challenges us to rest fully in him because here's the thing right until we learn to rest fully in what God accomplished on the cross we would never be able to respond fully to Jesus as Lord right until we learn to rest fully in what God accomplished on the cross we will never be able to respond fully to Jesus as Lord and so this is what this looks like right it looks like us saying I'm man I'm fully satisfied in Jesus, knowing that my destiny and my future is secure in him, that I don't have to fix this, I don't have to write this place. In fact, some of it is a humbling and going, I can't fix this. I can't write this place. I'm going to rest in Jesus knowing that he's already made it right. And that future is what I'm living towards. Right? And that's a, that's a hard place for us to be. And it's a hard truth for us to accept. Because the reality is we live in this world where things are less than ideal at times. And we're longing still for them to be made right. But my prayer for us as a church, for us as a people, is that we can learn to rest in what Christ has already done. So that it's out of that rest that we can pursue, um, we can pursue the people that God created. We can become the people that God created us to be. You know, when God called me to ministry, I was 100% sure that God had no idea what he was doing. In fact, I probably said it in those words, God, you are clueless. Like, I know you don't, I know nine times out of ten, you know what you're doing. But, but in this one, you, you, you don't, you don't, you, you're just not getting it right. Um, when, when God called me, to, I mean, I was, I mean, I was just, I, I was just this, um, I was kind of a card-carrying introvert. Like, that was who I was. I was an introvert, and I was proud. Right? I didn't need to be around people. I could, like, I could lock myself in my room and be by myself nearly twice. Like, I could come out and get some food, and I'd be good, right? Um, I, was, I, was, I was a little shy at the time. I still tend to have a little bit of shyness towards me. I was slightly socially awkward. Like I had a hard time making eye contact with people and holding conversations. I knew that uh, one of the things that, that, that um, at least in my head, normal people did in conversations was they made eye contact. So I was, I was, I was like, when God called me to ministry, I'm like, God, I can't even look people in the face. <laughs> like you want me to stand and preach and I can't look people in the face. And even still, sometimes if, you, if you're having a conversation with me, I find that my eyes start because I'm like, I'm focused. I'm like, make eye contact my hair. 
here. My eyes get big. Have you ever noticed that, right? My eyes get big. Don't, don't act like you've seen that before. My eyes get big, and then there's this voice in my head that says, okay, act normal, and my eyes go back to normal size. Like, I'm trying to make, and so like, I'm like, God, you have no idea what you're doing. Right? I'm like, there's just no way that, that you've got the right one. I was 100% sure that God had the wrong person. And I, I just remember when I was in school, I finally, like, so I started off doing engineering when I was in school. And then finally I said yes to God. I was like, all right, God, I'm going to go to a Christian school, like whatever. But I'm not doing this ministry thing, but I'm going to go to this Christian school. And then I had this class where one of the assignments was to interview a pastor, And so I'm like, all right, cool. I wrote my list of questions, and I went to interview a pastor. Actually, it was at Word of Faith right up the street. This church is is like uh, a stone's throw away uh, from us. And and Pastor Garmin was the pastor there. He's still the pastor there. And I remember going into his office with this list of questions. I don't know if I've ever told you all this story before. But I remember going to this guy's office with this list of questions that I had to do for this assignment. Like, I went to the secretary. I didn't know him at all. Like, we had never met. I just talked to his secretary and said, listen, i got to interview somebody from a class. Can I interview your pastor? And uh, I go in there with this list of questions questions. And I asked him the first question. It was probably something like, what made you want to become a pastor? Or something, something random like that, just like an intro question. And this guy, I, t- I, t- I tell you the truth, this guy looked me straight in the eye and said, what are you running from? And I was like, hold on, I'm doing the interview, right? That's what we scheduled. This was my interview. I'm supposed to be the one asking the questions. And, and he pressed into that. In fact, I ended up writing the paper and going, hey, I didn't get any of my questions answered. This guy read me like a book. He knew that I didn't like making eye contact, and I was running from that. I'm like, I am running from failing as a minister, right? If you want to know what I'm running, that's what I'm running from, because I knew that God had the wrong person. And it was right there that moment that I had to learn. I had to learn to rest in what God had already accomplished on the cross. And the fact that because of what Jesus did on the cross, he doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those who called. He doesn't pick the best talent, right? God's not a talent scout that's picking the best one for the job, right? He is using whoever he wants to use. He's doing what he wants to do. He doesn't care if he has the wrong person for the job. God will work it out. He's just simply calling us to say yes, and we can only say yes to God out of this place of rest. And so I sat back and I said, all right, God, this thing fails. It's on you, right? It's not on me, right? If this thing fails, if this goes poorly, I'm just simply going to follow you. But if this goes poorly, it's on you. And and I, I, I kid you not, right? We even did that with the church, like with starting Tri-Cities Church, if this goes poorly, right, this is on you, God, because this is something you started. This is something you called us to. And it came out of this place of rest in that we are confident and sure in God, this peace of not needing to go out and do and accomplish and build and uh, determine our worth or value based on something we could do or accomplish or build, but it's simply resting on and resting in the Lord. And when you do that, there's less pressure to fix it, to figure it out. And you can confidently pursue what God is doing in our lives by his spirit. You see, Jesus is calling us to rest in him 
and be led by his spirit. You see, it's only as we rest in the Lord that we are able to make space for God's spirit to work in and through us. It's only as we rest in the Lord that we make space in our lives because if we're not resting in the Lord, we're constantly trying to figure this thing out, right? We're constantly pursuing different things, trying to make this place right. We're reading different books and we're looking at different uh, um, 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 uh, systems, if you will, that are laid out strategies in order to fix this place. And God's simply saying, rest in me and I will lead you by my spirit. You see, when we read in the Bible, we see that God's spirit is the supernatural power of God, the supernatural power of God. God's spirit is the supernatural power of God at work in this world. And it's at work in and through us. Those who believe in Jesus Christ have God's spirit, the supernatural power of God within them, at work within them. And God is able to do um, supernatural things, things that are beyond what is normal and ordinary for us to do. He's able to give us a patience that's beyond our understanding. He's able to move us towards generosity that just doesn't make sense. He's able to uh, create in us these loving hearts and compassion for people that we might not even have had compassion for. It's the supernatural power of God at work in this world that is doing things beyond what we feel qualified, equipped, or able to do. I love this. There's this story in Exodus. Um, it was Moses, and, 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 and I, mean, I think this is even a theme throughout all, all the scripture. This is a story with, with Moses in Exodus, and, and Moses, if you're familiar with the story, um, Moses was the one God chose um, to call Pharaoh to let God's people free, uh, the Israelites. They were in slave, uh, they were slaves in Egypt, and he sent Moses to go call um, Pharaoh to let the people free, and, and, and long story short, Pharaoh ends up letting the people go free. They go into this wilderness. They wander in the wilderness for a long time. God is still leading them in the wilderness. In fact, God is providing for them in miraculous and supernatural ways in the wilderness. In fact, the wilderness should have built their faith. Um, yeah. Yeah, in ours. Like the wilderness is a faith-building environment. So the wilderness should have built their faith. Um, but here's the truth of the wilderness, right? The wilderness is a hard place to be in, right? These, these different environments and these different times in life, we find ourselves in hard places to be in, and we have two options, right? We can either press into the Lord, right, and continue to trust and believe in Him, or we can press into our own strategy, our best wisdom and knowledge. Now, the Israelites chose um, the latter, right? They chose to pursue other gods. And so uh, kind of in a way that in retrospect to us looks very foolish, um, they built a golden calf. Now Moses was off on a mountaintop meeting with the Lord as they built this golden calf. And Moses comes down and he sees that they have turned away from the God of creation into some God that they fashioned by their own hands. And he's frustrated. And as a leader of the people, he's ready to quit. And we have this passage in, um, in, in Exodus chapter 33 that I just love so much because it, I think it kind of paints for us an image of what it looks like for us to rest in the Lord and respond out of this place of resting. If you look in Exodus chapter, chapter 33, I'm going to pick up in verse 12. Look at what it says. It says, Moses said to the Lord, this is after he came down off the mountain, he saw these people made this golden calf. He had the Ten Commandments in hand and all 
600 other commandments God had given him, and he destroyed, like he throws them down on the ground, destroys them. He's just frustrated. He's ready to quit. And so it says, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me, right? So he's going, you're telling me to lead these people, but I'm telling you, I'm not qualified. Uh, so he said, you're not telling me whom you're going to send with me. He said, you have said, I know you by name, right? And you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know, uh, know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember this nation is your people, right? So this is your thing. Moses is going, hey, God, this isn't my thing. This is your thing, right? This is your world. I, my life is your life. And then look, look at what he says. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And so God's saying to Moses, my presence is going to be with you. I'm not going to abandon you. Like my spirit is with you. You're not going to be on your own in the wilderness. And I'm going to give you rest there. Now, there's not much rest in the wilderness. But the rest of the Lord is in the wilderness, right? This peace in the middle of a broken situation is in the wilderness. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then it says, then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. In other words, he says, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go, right? We don't want to go anywhere but where your presence leads us. And the reason why I think this is such a beautiful image for us is that it's this idea of resting in the Lord so that we make space to be led by the Spirit, right? Because that's what Moses did, right? He said, I'm going to simply rest in the Lord, and I'm going to be led by your presence. I'm going to trust you to figure this out, and I'm going to listen to you. You see, when we make space for God's Spirit to work in our lives, we make space for God to do the extraordinary things in our lives, right? Not the ordinary, but the extraordinary things in and through us. You know, Paul writes about this when we come back to Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, and we look in chapter 2. This is right after he finishes talking about these foolish things, right? The message of the cross uh, being foolishness. Um, he, 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 he writes something that makes me ex- extremely nervous as a pastor, um, is, is that he, he, um, he writes to the Corinthians and he says, um, and this is out of this place of rest. He says to the Corinthians, like, I, I'm not, like, in, in my ministry and the work I'm doing ar- among you, I'm not relying on, um, essentially saying, I'm not relying on the things they taught me in seminary. Like, you know, I, I, you know I, I've spent a lot of years in school, um, and, 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 and I learned some good stuff. There's some good stuff I, I learned, and, and I'm going to be honest, there's, there's some, like, I lean on some of the stuff I learned, right? I go back, and I open some of my books. I got a whole bunch of them, more than more than I care to admit. Uh, but, uh, but, I, but I do lean on trusting some of that stuff because I feel like I got some good. But, but Paul goes, hey, I, like, I'm not going to trust. Or, look at what he says, right? I'm going I'm to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, um, um, verse 1. It says, and so it, so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, I came to you in weakness. He's just saying, like, I pushed aside all the things, all my learning, all my education that would make me strong, right, according to the ways of the world, right? I I came to you in weakness and um, with great fear and trembling, right? He's like, so Paul's going, hey, this is making me nervous too. 
And so I, like, I learned all these ways of speaking eloquent, and I learned these ways of like, uh, appealing to people's emotions and getting them to buy into what I'm saying. I, like, I've learned all this stuff uh, in my education and training. And then Paul goes, but I'm not going to rest on any of that. Listen to what he said, verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Essentially, he's saying, I got myself out of the way so that God's spirit could do what only God could do. He said, I'm not relying on this ability to write this message in order to be persuasive. I'm not uh, relying on my ability to be animated and to stand before you and shout and yell in order to be persuasive. I'm simply coming to you uh, as empty as I know how, resting simply in what God is able to do. And I'm trusting that God's spirit will come through and that you will receive the gospel. You see, Paul steps back and he says, I want it to be none of me and all of he. Like I want it to be solely something that God does. And I don't want anybody to mix that up. And so Paul steps back and says, hey, I'm going to rest in the Lord. And I'm going to trust that God's going to do what only God can do. Now, I, I think this is a good passage. And I don't know, um, it, we, I think we got, a, we got a few other people who are uh, uh, ministers and preachers in the building. And some more of you who are called to ministry and just don't know it yet. Um, <laughs> this, <laughs> uh, hey, hey, hey. Let's talk. Um, this, <laughs> I mean, let me just say, this is not a ministry strategy. Paul is not saying, hey, ministers, preachers, speakers, all of you, when you go out and tell somebody the story of Jesus, you need to be as bland as you can possibly be and just make space for God's spirit. He's not saying that. He's using an example for us. He's laying out an example for us of how God's Spirit is able to work through places where we are completely bankrupt, inadequate, unable, disqualified, unqualified, where we lack skill and ability that God's Spirit is able to work in and through those places if we simply rest in the Lord. You see, the scriptures aren't calling us to leave our brain at the door, right? It's not calling us to say, all the stuff you've learned, throw that out the window. And this is a tricky area, right? Because it is calling us to discern between, like, here's, what does it look like for us to, um, what does it look like for us to rely on and trust the wisdom of God? And, and how do we determine God's wisdom apart from our own desire, right? How, can, how do we decide in this world what it looks like for me to, like, um, how do I judge between what it, what's, what, how do I judge between the foolishness of God right, and just being foolish, right? How do I decide between, because, because like when I read this story with Paul and he's going like, I didn't come to you with persuasive words. I'm like, persuasive words are yours. Use them, brother. Like, like use them, right? It's effective. Like, use it. Um, and so how do we decide when we're like just being fools and when we're like leaning into the foolishness of God, the wisdom of God that the world sees as foolishness? Because the world would look at that and say, hey, that guy was foolish. He was a bad, bad communicator. And I'm surprised that anybody even listened to him. Um, <laughs> 
Paul begins to lay this out for us. And I think what he wants us to see here is that he's not just saying in ministry. Um, He's not just saying in ministry that you refuse to trust the wisdom of this world. But he's showing us that in life, we have to refuse to trust the wisdom of this world and live these lives that are deeply skeptical of the ways of the world in order to make space in our life for the way of God. You see, he's calling the church, right, to be willing at least to be made fools for Christ, right? That that is a mark of the Christian life. The mark of the Christian life is this willingness for us to be made fools for Christ. That is to follow the way and will of God, even when it does not line up with the way and will of this world, even when it doesn't line up with what's totally accepted in this world. And Paul wants to roll this out and say, this is true, and this ought to be true in every area of your life. Paul's speaking from a minister because he is a minister, and I speak from the perspective of a minister because I am a minister. But what the scriptures are calling us to do is to imitate what Paul did in every area of life. So we don't just buy into parenting wisdom of this world just because it's out there and books have been written and it's proven to have some kind of success and we push aside the wisdom from God when it comes to how we parent and raise our kids in order to uh, parent them right, right? Because the right way to parent our kids is in the way of the Lord, right? And we don't lean into wisdom that teaches us how we interact with our neighbors based on books that have been written and strategies that have been devised, but we listen to the way of the Lord and we interact. We, we don't read just marriage books and decide what it looks like for us to be married and how to have a healthy marriage based on books that we read or information that's somehow out there in the world about letting the toilet seat down. Uh, that's the way to have a healthy marriage. Or don't go to, you know, this is what they say like when people get married. Make sure you let the toilet seat down all the time and you'll have a happy marriage. Never go to bed angry and you'll have a happy marriage, right? We don't listen just to the way of the, the world, right? We listen to the way of the Lord. And the scripture is calling us to live these counter-cultural lives, these lives that sometimes don't look like and don't have the same values as are the values of this world. And so it's this message of the cross that's foolishness to the world that when we believe it and fall into this category of those who are being saved, we begin to live lives that might make us look like fools in the eyes of the world. You see, the church is a community that's called to radical love unconditional even love. That's different than the love that we see in the world that is often conditional and based on what you have to offer and what you have to give. But the church is called to this radical agape is the word the Bible uses about God's love for us. It's not based on us being worthy. We're called to this deep place of compassion that just doesn't make sense to hurt when those around us are hurting and to feel their pain and to enter into their story and to be driven to do something about it. 
We're called to this radical forgiveness that says, that doesn't say you fooled me once, fooled me twice, you're not going to fool me three times, forgiveness is up for you. But this radical forgiveness that says, I'm going to forgive and keep forgiving and keep forgiving and keep forgiving because God does that for me. We're called to this grace that accepts and embraces and welcomes people who don't look like us, people that don't act like us, people whose stories and lives we can't understand, won't understand. We're not supposed to embrace them on the basis of understanding them. We're supposed to embrace them on the basis of them being human, a person that Jesus Christ died for, that he himself embraced and continues to embrace. We are the body of Christ, and we're called to love and to show compassion and to show forgiveness and to embrace those who are not like us, to welcome We're called to stand on conviction and to believe what we believe, even when it becomes unpopular in this world, to walk boldly out our faith in a way that our world does not understand, to be not driven with the tides and the directions of this world and the trends that are happening, but to stand on the truth of God's word. We're called to be those people who will live fundamentally countercultural lives when we do these things. You see, the Bible's calling us to rest in God's spirit and and what God accomplished on the cross so that we can be led by God's spirit to live these radical lives. Man, I just feel like... Like if our gathering here together is the only thing that makes us different than the world, right? The fact that we gather and we sing some songs and we listen to some scripture and we hug each other during our greeting time and we go out and no, and no other way does our, do our lives look different than the world, right? we're missing the point. Um, scriptures are calling us to live transformed lives where we do everything different. Than the ways of the world. Look at um, look, look at look at um, First Corinthians chapter chapter four. Uh, I'm jumping over chapter three, but chapter four. I want, I want you to see this this verse. I'm, I'm going to pick up in verse ten. Listen to what Paul says because he's he's kind of it's a, kind of a weird passage to understand or difficult to understand. Um, what he's doing here is he's contrasting on the lives that the apostles, um, Paul and other ministers of the church are, are li- living. Uh, he's contrasting his life and their life with the church, church themselves. And he's saying, this is what, what we're embracing and we're pursuing, and, and this is what you continue to embrace and pursue. Look at verse 10. You'll see what I'm saying. He says, we are fools for Christ, right? He's saying, we, the apostles, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise, right? You're still persistent on being wise, right? Leaning on the wisdom of the world. Like, we're, we're understanding that, yeah, we're going to live these lives that are going to make us look like fools for Christ, but you're, you're going to continue to, to lean on the, on the wisdom of this world. He's contrasting himself. He's, they're holding themselves up as an example for the church and holding the church up, right, in Corinth, up as an example of what not to do, right, not to puff yourself up, not to say, I figured this thing out, not to say, I'm wise. So he says, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored 
We are dishonored to this very hour. This is what he says, right? Um, He's showing how sometimes when we live these countercultural lives, these lives that go against the norm of our society, that this is how it will feel, right? He says, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. We are cursed. We bless. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly, right? He's saying that even though this way of Christ isn't earning for us an ideal situation or ideal setting or circumstances, we continue to press into the way of Christ because we are fools for Christ. He says, when we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of this world right up to this very moment. He's expressing how they feel as followers of Christ, that we feel like we don't belong here. And we're not welcomed here. We feel like the scum of this earth. But then if you keep reading, he says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even as you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, that is like um, people around you who are mentoring you and teaching you in the church, that are leading in in the church. He says, "Um, uh, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ I became your father through the gospel. What he's saying here is I became the one to show you how to live your life. He's saying there's a lot of people in the church around you that are offering good advice, right? Um, but, but I've came to show you how this actually looks when you walk it out. Therefore, I urge you, verse 16, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. You see, Paul says this multiple times in the scripture. He says, imitate me as I imitate the way of Christ. He's showing us that in everything, not just in ministry, in everything, We are to imitate this way where we lean on and we rely on the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of this world. This is a hard thing to do, and there's, um, I kind of want to close with just sharing with you three questions that I at least, I ask myself in order to uh, make sure, um, almost like as a way of holding myself accountable, as a way of saying, "Am am I being a fool for Christ? Like, am I leaning on the wisdom of God? Or am I trusting the wisdom of the world, right? These are three questions that I always ask myself. Um, One, am I living for my glory or or am I living for God's glory, right? Am I living for God's glory or am I living for my own glory? In other words, am I living simply to benefit my own life? Or is there a clear channel between my decisions that I'm making on a daily basis and the glory of God, right? Do I I want to live in some way to, to build up my own little um, empire, right, my, my, own, my own space, my own house. I, do I want to protect what's mine? Do I want to leave a legacy that's material, right, my own glory? Or do I want to leave a legacy that's eternal, God's glory? Am I living for my own glory or am I living for God's glory? Because here's what I find is that when I begin living for my own glory, which is just so easy to do, Right, and, and, this, and glory may be a bad word to use because it makes it say, like, am I living to make myself famous? And you may go, well, I'm not living to make myself famous. But am I living, are my decisions simply benefiting me in my life? Or are they benefiting others? Because the Bible tells us that God is primarily concerned with his own glory. In fact, he created us for his glory. So all the things God created us for, his purpose in us, our very purpose must be to glorify God. And so there has to be clear channels between the decisions we make and the glory of God. 
And so I'm, I'm choosing to raise my kids in this way um, because I want to glorify God. Or I'm choosing to move into this community because I want to glorify God here. Or I'm choosing to buy this house not because I want this massive space with bedrooms I'm not going to use, but because I need space in which I can be hospitable and glorify God. Right? I'm making decisions in order to glorify God. And so the Bible is always challenging us to ask those questions, and that's one of the ways that I use, at least, to make sure that I'm not just being a fool, um, but being um, a fool for Christ. Um, the second question uh, that, that I want you to see, uh, that I, oh, I just tore a page in my Bible. Lord, forgive me. <laughs> um, my second question um, Am I, um, am I aware of my daily need for God, right? Am I aware of my daily need for God? You know, sometimes life gets very mundane, kind of routine. We're just going through the motions. I wake up, I, you know, take a shower, get dressed, uh, uh, get in the car, go to work, do my job, come home, cook dinner, watch a little TV, go to bed, wake up, take a shower, you know, do the same thing day in, day out, and don't feel the need to slow down and be with the Lord in a meaningful way. Now, you, you might not verbalize it this way that I don't need the Lord, but that's kind of what we're saying when we don't stop and make time for the Lord. We're saying that I can do this thing without you. I don't really need your wisdom. I don't need to rest and rely on you. I don't need to seek wisdom from God because I got this, right? I just got to take a shower. I can do that without the Lord. I just got to make some breakfast. I can do that without the Lord. I just got to drive, right? Hopefully you feel a little less in Atlanta traffic uh, uh, driving without the Lord. But, but, you know, we can easily go through life without resting and relying on the Lord. And I find that when I'm getting to that routine where I'm pushing God out, or at least I'm slowly drifting from the Lord, that I need to be recalibrated. This week, actually, my, my car, um, it's no longer a Honda Fit. It's a truck because I destroyed that Honda Fit, uh, <laughs> to, to put it lightly. Um, um, I, I, I drive a, a, a truck now. My truck has been in the shop uh, for almost a week now, and I've, I've been in this rental, and this rental is fancy. I don't know what they did giving me this fancy rental. Uh, and, and it has the little thing to keep you, like, it's the lane sensors to keep you in your lane. Those, those are pretty nifty. And it kind of has this almost like an auto-correct kind of thing that, like, when you start drifting out of your lane, it kind of drifts you back into your lane. And I was like, oh, this is fancy. I can get used to this. Um, it, and it reminds me of what we need to do on a daily basis. And what prayer does for us when we slow our lives down and we begin our days before the Lord is we begin preventing the drift into this place of doing life without the Lord. Because it's easy for us to drift in that way, to just go through life and just doing the things we have to do and not rest and rely on wisdom for God and not say, God, what do you have for me in this day? What would you have me to do in this day, to accomplish in this day? In fact, Martin Luther uh, has this famous quote. In fact, his friends actually verified it because some people are like, yeah, this is bogus. This guy's not lying. Martin Luther, the, the famous theologian, he says, I have so much to do that I shall not get on with it without spending at least three hours in prayer. 
right? So he says, the beginning of my days, I'm spending at least three hours in prayer because I have so much stuff I have to get done. And he's recognizing the need for the presence of the Lord to recalibrate and focus. And the miracle of the Lord is able to multiply and make space in his days. And the wisdom of God, which is what we really need to rely upon. And so the second question I, I ask myself is, am I da- aware of my daily need for God? Third question, final question, and I want you to hear this one, is at, do I uh, experience an overwhelming sense of peace from God? Am I experiencing God's peace? Now, there's a difference between peace and comfort, right? Comfort is what we often pursue. We pursue to be comfortable in this world, so we pursue situations that make us comfortable, um, if that's a myth that you've held on to, that, per, that be, having faith in God will make you comfortable, let me debunk that myth, right? Faith in God, following Jesus will make you uncomfortable. Jesus' disciples lived homeless. They relied on others. They didn't store up and have the savings and security that makes us comfortable in this world. The Bible is calling us to this place of discomfort where we experience the overwhelming peace of God. You see, we have to be pursuing God in order to experience his peace. We have to be living these different lives in order to experience his overwhelming peace. And that's this peace that just does not make sense. You see, when we're fools for Christ, we may feel like this isn't the life for me. This isn't what I would have chosen if I were writing my own story. But we recognize that we're standing in God's story when his peace overwhelms us, even when it doesn't seem like we should be experiencing it. See, I want to challenge us as a church to begin thinking about what it looks like to give God everything, to begin releasing to God our lives, that he can do powerful, incredible things through us as we learn to rest in him and make space for his spirit to work through us and to lead us into his will that just doesn't make sense in the world. This Sunday is every Sunday. We gather around these tables and we share in communion. And communion is really this time that we look at what Jesus did that did not make sense. And we see on the other side of the death of Jesus is the resurrection the resurrection, the life that we all crave. And the Bible's challenging us to die with Christ so that there might be a resurrection for us, right? To die from our, to our ways, to die to our will, to die to our desires so that we might be raised with Christ. And so as we come to these tables, I want to challenge you this morning to ask yourself before you come to the table, what am I holding on to with a death grip? Because I got to figure this out. And I have to make this right. And then say, what does it look like for me to release that to the Lord and be led by his spirit so that he can do what he's already done? He's made it right. Your redemption is secure in him. Let's pray, and then whenever you're comfortable, you can go to one of these tables and share in communion. God, we do give you thanks this morning.